Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a first-time filmmaker's journey. I am your host, Josh Lindsay, from the Movie Proposal Podcast, and with me is our first-time filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hey, Josh Lindsay. How's it going? I haven't seen you in such a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, our sound guy, do everything for us. Uh, the Trusty, man- dusty researchers, we right. usually say. <laughs> Jason Rugg. Hey there. So today we're going to continue fan questions. So if you didn't hear the last podcast, you should go back and check out some of the questions that we talked about. Um, thanks to Ashley for asking questions today. We're going to tackle some questions from Jonathan Parsons. So let's uh, dive right in. Uh, so Christian, tell us about how you went uh, editing the film. I imagine you need to watch through countless hours of footage. In fact, we set a number, didn't we? Was it 600 hours? Yeah, we did kind of have a little bit uh, on the editing before, but yes, we did set. We're estimating. We're estimating because we had this whole conversation where we know we have about, what did I say? I don't know. 20, I think it's like 25 terabytes of footage. Which yeah. means nothing to me, the average Joe, right? <laughs> right. But um, if you can, I think that a terabyte is 100,000 gigabytes. Yeah. So we talked, you had originally. Well, it's, it's a thousand gigabytes. Uh-uh. Is it? Well, we've entered a little bit. You're our researcher. Somebody look it up. Hold on. <laughs> Uh, well, we're talking about math, and so you've lost me already. <laughs> so, um, all right, yeah, so we had 25 terabytes of footage, um, and Jason was trying to help explain to you. To convert that into? A terabyte is 1,024 gigabytes. 1,024, okay, thank you. Which means? Which means, so you were talking about it in terms of quarters. Yeah, which I, we were trying to, it, it became really complicated. Yeah, no, I think this is a great analogy. <laughs> I don't remember the numbers anymore. <laughs> well, okay, so just imagine a stack of, um, I would say, like 20,000 quarters. <laughs> Can't do it. I don't know. <laughs> it's a lot. It's just a lot. It's a lot. And, and maybe, it, you know, 600 hours, let's say. All right. Have but you seen all 600 hours? We, have, we, have, we were running three cameras, two cameras and a, one drone. So we were running three cameras just about every time we were filming. And so an hour's worth of footage needs to be multiplied by, you know, to, th- to three. Mm. So for every hour we film, we actually had three hours of film. Okay. Um, and this is generic. It wasn't always this way. I have not watched all 600 hours. A lot of that is fluff. You know, it's setting up the camera, taking it down, going from here to here. It's B-roll. It's, you know, um, just a bunch of things. What we ended up doing is sorting through a lot of that, cutting out all of the fat you know, the stuff that wasn't important. And we would edit it down into pieces that we knew we were going to use. So when you say we, how many people are we talking? So um, Terry Jun, who is my uh, partner, has been working post-production. He's our post-production supervisor. Um, Bill Ebel is our editor. He's down in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, We have had Anthony Rose, who is an assistant editor that lives in Kentucky. We have had um, Kyler Redding, who lives in Dallas. Um, as well as, as well as, who else has been? Jason Rugg. I know him. Yes, Jason Rugg <laughs> has been helping us. So um, all of those people have been cutting things down to bite-sized pieces so that we can watch them. So I've watched the interviews that um, are important for our story. And, of course, I was also there for all of them. So I did remember that. The problem was I didn't speak French. So 
That's a problem. Yes, it, it was a problem. <laughs> so we had to have those videos subtitled so I could understand them. We had about 31 French interviews. Okay. Um, and so that our editor could edit them. So what was his whole question? Did I well, answer it Well, you, you did. And actually, this transitions into his next question is, how do you know what you must keep, and is it really hard to cut something? Yeah. Well, um, it is impossible uh, to make these decisions. We talk about in the industry, it's like, you know, cutting off your appendages or killing your babies. Or um, in our story, we have so many stories that in themselves, I figured I could probably do a 10-part series at the least, like easily. I could do a 10-part series because each person has their own story that if I spent time on that one story would be an episode of itself. Um, So, The hard part for me, and this kind of goes into, I think somebody asked about story. Um, I I am a first-time filmmaker. I've never done this before, obviously. I think if I could go back, um, one of the things I would have told my future self was, please make sure that you have your story worked out before you ever start shooting. Before you start shooting. Yes, and I thought I did. I thought I had it sorted out. Um. But I had big, broad ideas. I didn't have a script written. And what it ended up being was a collection of stories. But every film needs to have a beginning, middle, and end. There has to be a climax. There has to be a resolution. All of the rules of storytelling – like writing a book or writing a a narrative film – still exist within the documentary – And so you have to have acts, you know, certain beats. And so you have to understand the story that you're telling. In our story, our blog line, and a log line is the, you know, one or two sentence blurb that sums up your film. It's your elevator pitch, if you will. Our log line is uh, the perspective of the Normandy landings, but from the perspective of the French, or the story of the Normandy landings, but from the perspective of the French. And... I knew that that's what I wanted to tell, to talk about this gratitude and how I I can see in their eyes what we should be doing as a country. And I think that it's a very instructive lesson for us um, to understand and think about our freedom. But how do you tell that? Who's the the protagonist? Mm -hmm. Who's the antagonist? I've spent hours wrestling with this as, as to, you know, how I'm going to tell the story. And so we did finally write a script after we figured out that, you know, the antagonist and the protagonist really are, like the antagonist, for example, would be ignorance, Mm. right? Mm. Because as America, we've never been occupied. We don't know what the French know. So we, how can we truly value something that we've never lost, We've taken it for granted. So having that be an antagonist is super difficult. It's not even tangible, really. So trying to figure out how to tell the story um, with when you've got a collection of stories. Normally, it would be something like this. You would have – did you see Three Identical Strangers? I haven't. Fantastic documentary. But this is a great – their story is phenomenal because they have you know these three brothers that they're following. And so each brother has their own story, but their stories are interwoven. And there is a beginning, middle, and end. There are bad guys. There are good guys. Um, And so 
I could tell that same story if it was about the war. If our film was about the war, there is a good guy, there's a bad guy, there's a beginning, a middle, and end. But the story is not about the war. The story is about the people, the French people, and how they think about the war, how they think about our veterans, how they've been changed because of the war. So it's just a very complicated story. And because I have so many different compelling stories, trying to figure out which ones to include and which ones not to include uh, has been excruciating. For, for sure. For example, we have Rhoda Reed. Rhoda Reed and I met in Wheaton, Illinois, in a clothing store right before she was going to go and scatter her husband's ashes on Utah Beach. He was a veteran that landed there. Well, it, it was very clear to me we needed to be there. We, in fact, planned the funeral service for her husband. We had reenactors there who were an honor guard from the 90th Infantry Division. And it, it's amazing, but at this point, I can't figure out how to get it, her story into the story. Well, there can be more stories down the line. Uh, yes, there can be, but they cost money. Yes. And I'm yeah. never going to direct. This is another thing I've learned. <laughs> I'm never going to direct any other film unfunded. I've now cut my teeth. This fundraising part is nearly So have me. a better idea of your story mm-hmm. and get the money. Yes. <laughs> but no, I got to imagine, though, with a documentary, I mean, there, even in a fictional film, as someone's writing it, you know, the, Things do change along the way. I mean, you were discovering the story as you were meeting the people, I would imagine. I mean, how far along do you think you were into it that you realized, I found my story? I knew the very first time I met someone that I had a story. Because the story you're going to tell now. uh, That only was hammered out after we had shot and we came back and had to write the script. And, And I have a real good writer She's never written a documentary script, and that is because we didn't have money. So I can't go out and hire somebody that has documentary writing experience. They're not going to want they're, – they're going to say the same thing. I'm, I've done that before. I'm not doing anything for free, <laughs> right? Well, this is a woman that's an excellent writer. She's written in several different formats, and so she's got all the bones there, but she's never written ha- – doesn't have a documentary film credit to her name. So she's taking all those good writing skills and saying, this has to be a story, and how are you going to tell the story? And she was forcing that. Now, for our pickup shoot, we had already written the script. She What's had, a pickup shoot? A pickup shoot is we shot uh, in principal photography in June, May and June. And that was the bulk of our filming. And we thought we were and hoped we were done. Once we got into the editing and we listened to a bunch of the French interviews, we realized we had a lot of holes that we needed to plug. So we had to go back in December to uh, do some other interviews and plug the holes. By this time now, we had a script and we had a writer who was um, saying, hey, in order to make this story, I need to have this, 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 and this. Mm. So she went with us. She wrote all the questions for me to ask this time, and we got what we needed in order to have this complete script. So, you know, it's it's still a work in progress. We are still discovering. Just today, I've discovered more things <laughs> that I want to weave into this film. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, um, Jonathan's question, next question was actually uh, right in that, you know, did you look for a storyline or a theme? Did you, you know, try and take the viewer on a certain emotional journey? I think you covered all that. Um, I, I do want to say this. That whole emotional journey thing— 
is also an art. And that art, in my opinion, is is where uh, it's where the stew comes together. The editor has a huge hand in that. You know, they understand the psychology of people and what what oftentimes the absence of anything is just as powerful mm-hmm. as images or other things that you're having the viewer watch. Mm-hmm. And you need the audience needs to have time to breathe and emotionally process what they've just heard. So you've got the writer and the director, you've got the actor or the cast member and you have uh, the editor. You have the sound. Sounds hugely important. So yes, I I want the emotional journey. I want in the beginning for everybody to understand the beauty of Normandy and how exciting the French people are for their freedom and what they do to celebrate. But then I want them to hear the cost of that war, the cost of what it was like while they were occupied, the pain that they endured, the elation when the soldiers arrived. But then, yes, for the moment the soldiers arrived, whether they parachuted in or they you know, rode in on the beaches, after that short elation, there was a lot of pain. You know, we talked to one guy, Maurice Lacour, who was so excited, you know, for the liberation. He was 10. But they went and they hid in a ditch and shrapnel killed his mom. So on D-Day every year, that's the – how he's never going to be able to forget that. Mm-hmm. You know, the French people, I think they lost more French civilians in that area, 20,000 total in France. But in that area, something like thirteen or 14,000, like comparable to what the casualties of the soldiers were. But nobody talks about that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so so I want them to understand that it's not just a cost for our GIs; it's a cost for these people, and and then there's healing that happens. We see there's this wonderful line that a French woman said. She said, "You know, she's a, a cafe worker, cafeteria worker in a school. She helps young kids raise money to bring veterans back. So she said." Something incredible happens when the veterans go there. They come with this heavy burden. They're afraid to talk to the French people because they've destroyed their towns and villages and people. But shortly thereafter, once they're greeted by the French people and they've got red lipstick kisses all over their faces, they begin to stand up straighter. They begin to smile and smile big she tells ones of, of, of veterans even dancing. Their loads have been lightened. Hmm. And she said, you know, the French who were once liberated by the Americans liberate these soldiers in return from their oppressive memories of war. I actually saw that happen. We met Bob DeVinney here in the United States in Michigan last spring. We talked to him about what his feelings were about going over there. He was anxious and, you know, a little worried. When I saw him over there, he was a different man. He, his, he, he looked 10 years younger. I saw him walking with a group of beautiful French middle school girls who were holding his arms and taking selfies of themselves <laughs> with him. It was just precious. And, and it's like, it's like uh, what is that goblet, uh, the, the, 
Holy Grail. Okay. It's like the Holy Grail. <laughs> it's like the Holy Grail or the fountain of youth for them, honestly. Okay. You just so I want our my audience to see that and to feel that. And then I want them to think at the end, you know, I want them to walk away and think about the way that they think of their own freedom, how they treat the veterans around them. You know, I talk to so many veterans who say, you know, that phrase Thank you for your service. It's nice and all. It's nice that people are saying that now. They didn't used to. But it's kind of what everybody says. It's kind of like God bless you. And what I've learned from the veterans is they want you to sit there and talk to them. One veteran said, you start to talk to people and in two minutes their eyes glaze over and you can tell they don't really care. Well, when you sit there and you listen to their stories and you get to know them as a person – it totally changes them. I had Al Manprey at my house the other night. Do you guys know who Al Manprey is? No. So Al Manprey is the easy company medic that you see in episode four of Band of Brothers. He is 96 years old. He lives in Skokie, Illinois. He is a wonder to behold. He's this small little guy who was at Tacoa, Georgia. He was one of the very first Easy Company guys. He then got sick right before they were to leave for D-Day, so he didn't participate in D-Day. He got better, and he ended up jumping in Market Garden and was there all the way to, to the Eagle's Nest. So he has some unbelievable stories. He came over to my house the other night because he and his daughter are involved in our project. We've talked to them several times. And he wanted to see the rest of the crew. So he came over. He sat down in a chair. He walks with a cane. He's just very old. But he sat in this chair from 6.30 at night to 11.30 at night, (laughs) did not move, didn't get up, kept talking about all of his stories. He looked like a light bulb. And at the end of the night, he said to me, I know you guys are appreciative of me being here and all. He's like, but this gives me life. This is so exciting to me. You give me energy. Thank you for caring about me. I mean, that's really all they need. When people... When you take the time to listen and sit with a veteran, they feel your gratitude. And so if people don't take away anything else from our film, I hope that they will learn that. That's great. Um, I'm, every time I talk to you, Christian, I get more excited about actually seeing the film. So <laughs> I can't you wait. and me both. You well, and me both. Well, why don't we wrap up with this question from Flo Plana. <laughs> oh, my God. Do you Flo like Plana. French cheese? Oh, and my goodness. I didn't even know how good French cheese was until I <laughs> ate it in France. So there's a difference. Oh, there's a huge, huge difference. Well, in Normandy, let me just be particular to Normandy. Normandy is different than the rest of the country, and it is a very rural area. It's farmland. If you ever go to Normandy, just think about going to rural Mississippi because that's what it's like. They have tons of cows. So all of the cheese and the milk and the butter, it's all fresh from those local cows. And so there's just something super different about it. Everything there is natural. So there's not a lot of processed anything. They still cook all their meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They don't have fast food over there. Uh, you have to really hunt for a McDonald's or a KFC. Uh, so yes, that and Chev is my favorite. Um, the goat cheese is my favorite. Chev. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, All great. Right. Well, thank you for participating, listening today. Um, th- we, this was uh, our second 
of two well, questions? Yeah, we've only had like two people ask questions. Well, if you count floats, three right. now. So. <laughs> but we do have another episode after this, I hope, because I still have some incredible stories to tell you today. Oh, well, I can't wait. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, we're going to have more podcasts coming your way, learn more about making a documentary, Christian's Great News that is coming up in the next podcast. So again, thank you for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell, and you can be the one to tell it. Thanks, everybody. Bye, everybody.